we're live. All right, episode three of the Dialectic Podcast. Yeah, back at it. Uh, today we're going to do philosophy of religion. Yeah, starting off easy. <laughs> yep, start off with a real easy topic. What is God? Does God exist? <laughs> um, yeah, those are the main questions of philosophy of religion. It's not really upset. Like, theology is the study of, you know, what's inside of religious texts, but philosophy of religion is more trying to prove the existence of God or... Yeah, that's basically most of it. <laughs> Either prove or disprove the existence of God. Mm. In the typical Western sense, so like the monotheistic God that's, you know, omnibenevolent and stuff that, you know, is all-seeing, all-powerful, all that jazz. Mm -hmm. The typical view of God is what a lot of philosophers were attempting to prove through various arguments. So, and then, you know, other people came along and tried to disprove it. So... <laughs> So yeah, that's that's pretty much what we're gonna cover today. <laughs> um, so who? You said you wanted to talk about Spinoza. Oh yeah, I wanted to talk about quite a few philosophers. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess to start with, Anselm's like probably one of the most famous people for having a proof for the existence of God, and his argument was like, you know, God's the best thing imaginable, and. <laughs> because it's a perfect thing and you can imagine it or whatever, like it should exist. And then something even better than you can imagine should also exist. Therefore God exists and it's better than anything you can imagine. I think that's more or less the argument. Uh, so just doing like the rational thing up the chain of better and better states of being. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually it's like, well, God must be the best thing of all then. Like he's better than all things. That's an interesting way to look at it. In my experience, that is, is definitely true. Yeah. I mean, well, that's certainly Anselm's argument, but there's there's lots of people who have definitely destroyed that argument. Mostly, you run into the problem of the existence of evil, like, well, right, right, and, out, right out the gate. That's, that's a huge problem. And the assumption that somehow God or the unity and the divinity of everything is only the upward trend, and yeah, not also, it doesn't encompass the evil in the world. I think yeah. a, a lot of these kind of, theology kind of questions struggle with evil it's a hard thing to understand yeah plus it just begs the question it's like well okay then i can imagine a perfectly benevolent flying spaghetti monster <laughs> that is also yeah. all-seeing and all-knowing which and all feels loving. gross and wrong and yeah exactly really i mean you could use this as a justification for well it's a circular argument basically like it just it yeah i mean it doesn't check out sorry anselm <laughs> well no i think it's um it's beautiful in the sense that, um, it, you know, you should shoot for the stars and you should try to improve yourself. And it is possible, you know, the proposition that it is possible to get better and it is possible to approach divinity in some real tangible way. Um, but it's, you know, it's not the whole story. It's only part of the story. Yeah. Just his argument's a little weird where, you know, if God exists in the mind then a better version of it exists in reality. <laughs> mm. Well, I do think there's something there because, again, there's something to do with agency and consciousness and um, certainly with our experience. And then it, you, could, uh, you could definitely argue that that would be the case if, if the universe is kind of sentient in its own way, then it, it would make sense perhaps that it had some kind of volition or goals or even, even a personality. You know, maybe there's different universes with different God personalities. Who the hell knows? Yeah, and this is where the whole, you know, Anselm trying to justify, like, a monotheistic god or, like, you know, an omnibenevolent, like, Christian-type god, I mean, it's... 
Well, that's it's, interesting. It's hard to justify because it falls apart as soon as you're like, well, I can imagine a Hindu god that, that also yeah. does this. I can imagine, you know, Buddha. I can imagine all kinds of other religious figures that... <laughs> well, clearly we want to anthropomorphize it in that sense. Um, but I do think on a deep, perhaps physical, real reality sense, um, the universe is somehow conscious. I mean, we are conscious and we're part of the universe and... If there is a uh, God, so to speak, and I, I just don't, this is honestly new to me to think about God in this way. I just think it's fascinating because it would speak to why so many people personify God in that way. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, all these philosophers were like legitimately trying to use like scientific reasoning to like and and logic Which to try is, and justify existence honestly, for that's, God. That's kind <laughs> of a fool's errand, I would argue, because it's well, like, I mean, it's, they, it's, they, they they thought faith was like insufficient, so you needed you know like some kind of like tangible thing to point out and be like, well, this is the reason God exists. Like, yeah, here, I can prove it to you here. Like we talked about, like it's true in a different way. It's true, and I would argue in more of a kind of metaphorical allegorical sense but it's also true in a deeply kind of um evolutionary way that science has no clue about yeah and kant's response to like anselm's argument is like what he's talking about is like a predicate basically and he's saying a predicate is an existence so Mm. yeah so i mean you can predicate anything but that doesn't mean it exists like you well, can you can predicate you can predicate an omnibenevolent god but that doesn't mean it exists you can predicate a flying spaghetti monster that oh, doesn't mean it exists saying. well right but i th would think that a lot of theologists and spiritual philosophical thinkers aren't just pulling it out of thin air you know this is deeply rooted in hundreds of hours and years of study and introspection well, yeah, definitely. Anselm was, like, super crazy devout. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's like, where have I learned the most about God? It would be in the non-propositional, scientific, rigorous sense. It's when I'm... Well, I know. That's, that's when I'm sitting quietly in well, meditation. This is, well, this is why mostly <laughs> theology and stuff, they're trying to focus on, like, you know, the actual religious text as opposed to, like, sitting there trying to, you know, talk about proofs for the existence of God yeah. because then it calls God into question and then... They don't want that. So philosophy of religion just tries to look at it from a slightly yeah, different angle. Yeah, I think it's angle. both. You need both. You need that theology and you need the ritual. You need to talk about it and you need to do it. Yeah. You know, because in, in Buddhism, it's I'm going to talk a lot about Buddhism because that's my quote-unquote religion, even though it's not really a religion. But, um, you know, they talk about it as the three jewels, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And it's like you need the study and then you also need the practice. And then you need a community as well. So <laughs> the community can fact check you. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, so in a sense, understanding God can, can't only be understood propositionally and scientifically. I would argue it also has to be understood perspectively and, and, and um, embodied by doing. That's why there's rituals. That's literally the point of rituals is to understand in a different way. And uh, everything is a ritual. Everything is religious. What we're doing right now is a ritual. We're doing a dialogical ritual, hopefully to achieve pseudo-spiritual states. I don't know. I'm actually trying to disprove the existence of God. <laughs> I know. So, so no, I'm trying. I'm, I'm being totally antithetical the... to religion right now. So that's fine. But we're doing a Hegelian synthesis yeah. where 
where you have a thesis that God exists, I'll have a thesis, the antithesis well, of that, no, which is no, that God no, 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 does no, no, not no. exist, at least the fucking monotheistic fucking version of God that, you know, they created in Christianity. I don't believe no, that exists yeah, at yeah. all. Well, I think the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-judging God, that is, I don't think that exists at all. I think that's that's a crazy, crazy well, notion. Well, it could. You have to have the Well, sure, anything could exist. I mean... No, 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 but... <laughs> It's not to say that everything goes. It's just to to be a little more open minded about it. If a good portion of the world believes in that, there's probably where there's smoke, there's fire. Generally, right? You know, I mean, this is a phenomenon that it has. I think of it evolutionary. I th- like I talked about in the beginning. You had many gods, and we've narrowed it down to one. In a sense, that's just like kind of useful and practical. And then, in a sense, I think on an idea level, the ideas fought out on an evolutionary scale as well. So it kind of like culls it down to like one or two ideas. And that's kind of like the one or two God thing. Also, we mega anthropomorphize these prophets and shit. And we, we love to think that we're special. Um, and then of course, I think it's useful to think about the future as a judgmental father, for instance, and it's useful to personify the earth as a, a mother. You know, like these are all just like psychological adaptations. But no, I don't. My my intuition tells me that there is not a big beard bearded guy in the sky. But I think it's very important to have epistemic humility and know that there could be. And if you do the homework on consciousness, you can actually arrive at some proofs that make it seem like there's a creator. Oh, I've got all the proofs written down for yeah. the existence of God, but See, I'm, I'm going to say they're very easily dismissed. They're, they're circular arguments, a lot of them. And totally. like they're, that like every every proof for the existence of God they've come out with, uh, it falls apart at basically any kind of logical scrutiny. And that is, I mean, <laughs> somebody come up with a better one and maybe I'll become religious, but like until I see a proof for the existence of God that actually uh, can full yeah, out so prove it, then, then I'll keep my mind open. That's a way better idea. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... It's, I mean, I like Spinoza's version of God, but we'll get to that a little yeah, bit okay, later. Yeah, okay, so continue. I keep derailing you. Yeah, all right. So I, I guess the other... We'll get into Thomas Aquinas, who also came up with like a the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And again, he was you know trying to just prove God existed in a quasi-scientific, using logical type way. Sure. So, you know, he had... His, his arg- he had five different arguments. So his first one was motion. So he said that because objects are in motion, something had to set those objects in motion. Yeah, yeah, so that that the thing prime is God. mover. Yeah, yeah. prime mover. Yeah, the primary mover argument. So that's the first one. Causation's the second one. He's saying that something has to cause something else. So eventually, you have to get to a primary causer of all things. So sure. it's similar to the primary mover, but with causality instead. Um, and then you have contingency. Saying that everything's contingent on something else, so Which, ex- except yeah. for God. So once you get down to the only thing that's not contingent on anything, well, that was it would that. Be, it would be his. That would be God. That was that unity duality thing that I was talking about earlier. If you have the unity, the only thing you're lacking is distinction. The second you bring in just distinction, you break the unity into parts. Well, and then he said degrees also was was proof for the existence of God. Yeah. Yeah, he was saying because things come in different degrees and stuff, eventually there has to be something that doesn't come in degrees, I guess, and that's God. So, yeah. Yeah, those are his four main ones. And then the last one is the teleological argument for the existence of God, and that one is that there's, you know, 
God has purpose. I, they used the thing like if you found yeah. if you found a watch on the ground if you were wandering in the woods or whatever, then you would look at that and you'd say, "Wow, this was intricately designed by someone." So there right. must be a watchmaker. Exactly. So he's saying like God is the ultimate watchmaker, yeah. Yeah. because so that gets into like intelligent design. That's actually where intelligent design stems from. It's like the right. teleological argument for the existence of God. So, so yeah. If you go looking, <laughs> you really get the sense that there's design to the whole thing, <laughs> and. Um, Again, I, I talked about the intent and the goal direction of the individual cell, and it appears biologically in deep, deep sense that that's true all the way up. Yeah, these arguments stack up a lot better than, than Anselm's for sure, because these are like some pretty difficult questions to answer. I mean, we have the Big Bang, which basically like explains the primary mover and primary causer argument. Honestly, I don't know. And contingency and degrees, actually, like to a certain extent. But it still doesn't explain why there's rules to the universe. I mean, right? There's, yeah, <laughs> Aquinas was onto something. <laughs> apparently, very finely tuned rules as well. Yeah, um, and they are fairly, yeah. These are things that still philosophy and science can't really explain to a certain extent. Plus, the James Webb Telescope just basically calls into question even the Big Bang. So it's like, the way I always looked at this is that maybe maybe time as we view it is kind of wrong. Maybe, maybe because there is infinite regression, there doesn't have to be a primary mover. But for us yeah. to picture time as infinite is really hard for our brains to grasp because yes. we want there to be a beginning and an end to everything because there's a beginning and an end to our lives. So we think that the universe is the same way, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just existed forever, and that's just the way it is. Right. Like, uh, yeah, these are difficult questions. <laughs> I mean, part of me wants to say it's not even worth thinking about the primary mover, but I, I do think it is because um, it just it's a good exercise to kind of go down the rabbit hole and see how far your assumption can take you. And I think it does arrive at the possibility, at least, of God and um, of that God having consciousness, direction, and volition. If we do, heck, if even cells do, amoebas, everything else, um, there's no reason to think that other large-scale structures wouldn't have some sort of consciousness as well. Um, yeah, I mean... The universe consciousness is on the regular, apparently. Or maybe we're rare. I tend to think we're not rare, and the universe is teeming with consciousness. And um, I think it's good to be humble because uh, it's possible that people discovered things that we don't know, and this is what they're on about, and maybe God is real. Um, I think the practice of epistemic humility is the key here. It's not the brass tacks of whether it's actually a guy in the sky or not that's not interesting to me at all it's this process of trying to understand ourselves and trying to understand the universe and um the cool thing is is it, i've experienced things i've experienced oneness um i've experienced other beings i've experienced pseudo kind of talking in tongues speaking in tongues kind of states and um and spontaneous inspiration so very um, clear and obvious why people believe in God. There's definitely something there that people connect to that's very hard to define. And um, it answers a lot of the biggest questions. So it, it makes sense to, to ask, um, 
it's interesting to me that a lot of these philosophers were even interested in that in the first place. <laughs> well, again, faith isn't sufficient. Like to yeah, have to have a logical yeah. argument, faith is not sufficient. It just is not. Like I don't mm. think it's sufficient at all. Like when I well, hear see, interesting, when I hear right? people say, "Oh, you just gotta have faith." That's a no. That's, that's this is the thing. And so in order to experience these things, I would argue you have to experience them first person. And in order to do that, you have to do these practices. And in order to do the practices, you got to have faith that the thing is going to even work at all. If meditation will blow your mind, but you don't believe that it will, then you'll never do it. Well, meditation's different because it's backed by science, and that's non-religious and really a whole different thing. I mean, right. I, I mean, it's a Buddhist practice, but that, that I know. is completely it's, it's separate. It's weird for me from, to talk about it as a religion. Sure, it's, it's a religious practice, but it's also scientifically backed and becoming super popular. So it's mm -hmm. like... No, that just is scientifically backed to make you concentrate better, period. Like, yeah, it's it not does, just that, period. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what the science has shown. So I know. It's, it's, again, this is taking the beautiful and almost perverting it by trying to put it... No, it's proving that it exists. So instead of yeah, having to have not, faith, you Greg, can scientifically back it and be like, oh, well, this is definitely going to work because here's a shitload of science that proves that it exists. Like, it, it proves takes, that meditation is useful for you. So here's the science. Boom. It takes the communion with God and it dumbs it down to the level of reducing anxiety. I mean, it's like a typical American thing to be like, how can I use this to make me perform better? When in reality, you're communing with the deep realities of the universe. I mean, I don't see any problem with wanting to perform no. better ever. <laughs> At the core of it, I don't have a problem with that. I just think it's important to emphasize that that's not the Well, for people purpose. who are non-religious like me, though, who don't want to get something out of meditation in a yeah. completely non-spiritual sense, <laughs> then yeah, utilitarian, straight up. And like, honestly, I'll use it for utility. Like, if that'll get you in the door, then I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the God question in the Buddhist context is really interesting because... He, they don't talk about it at all. There's no God. It's strictly on Earth. It's just human stuff. Yeah, and that's Buddha, because Buddhism is deeply humanistic as opposed to yeah. like being some like yeah dogmatic. I mean, I, I think some <laughs> sects probably talk about it, and some people are more concerned about it than others. But um, it's it's a non-issue. Um, it's very much about liberation. The interesting thing is liberation, um, nirvana, or enlightenment could be considered, at least in my experience, as um, communing with God. But they don't even, like, put it in that framework, really, you know? Yeah. And um, this this focus on the creator, I do, I do see it as a deeply psychological Western thing that we do. We just, we love having this strict father who disciplines us and punishes us. It's just, it's just our own, our own like cultural psychology. I don't. <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Like, um, like I, I, I'm doing a gross comparison between East versus West. I just always found that so interesting. Um, but anyways, continue. Um. All right. So yeah, the the arguments against actually the teleological argument and well, at least against the teleological argument, which is like intelligent design, is that the problem of evil, that the world's not a perfect place. You know, mm -hmm. if you had an, a truly intelligent designer of the world and they would make the world, like, actually perfect, there'd be no poverty, there'd be no crime, there'd be no people living on the streets, it'd be, you know, a perfect yeah, you utopia know, all the time. Like, we, what, what we just talked about, in order to have the good, you have to have the bad. I mean, in a deep... Yeah, I mean, that's like the Hegelian dialectical, you know, opposition-type like, version where it's like you have to have both from the yin and the yang type thing where it's like... That is where Buddhism They have gets, to both exist. That is where Buddhism gets cosmological 
technological in that sense is this deep, deep acceptance of the duality in things. Like clearly it has to be that way. You know? So that would be the argument even against like a perfect world and that would somewhat yes. solve the problem of evil because you know you have to have evil to have good, at least according to like Hegelian dialectic, like they're self emergent and self contained. Yeah. So it's like you have to have one to have the other. <laughs> yeah, because it, I love the, the analogy of, of, of God being omnipresent, omni-whatever, just covering everything, is all, nothing exists apart from him. There's just this unified field of light. What does it lack? It lacks separation and definition. There's nothing there. The second you introduce definition, you introduce a gap. You introduce a void. Philosophers talk about this gap. And that leaves room for evil. And it has to be that way. If everything's warm and sunny all the time, then you will never experience it as such because you don't know what cold feels like. Yeah. I mean, it's on one sense, it's deeply simple and obvious, duality in all things. But on another level, it's, it's, it's pretty deep. And you have to kind of um, exist in this place where you're comfortable with the fact that evil exists. And I would argue that the key is seeing the evil in yourself rather than in other people. Um, once you notice it in yourself, then you can tend to see it in other people as well. And it's, it's in it. the Buddhists acknowledge it. They don't push it away. Um, I mean, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to foster the bad thoughts and the evil thoughts, but it's, it's very much like an acceptance of it. And um, I would say the Christians and a lot of the, um, Abrahamic religions try to deal with evil in a very kind of disciplinary controlling way which is often you know maladaptive and not very productive yeah I think both Darwin and Hegel would say that just evil is emergent out of history like it's just an evolutionary process that just happened well, first, like you it, gotta yeah. define, first you gotta define what evil is and that's clearly a problem because oh I, yeah that, that takes a minute <laughs> but I guess what we assume by that is all the bad quote unquote I mean this is really difficult all, this, all the suffering in the world I mean that's that's a pretty fundamental like, but, definition of but evil but when I guess. suffering causes positive evolution you know what I mean it's, it's very hard to distinguish what is good and bad here yeah it's true because i suffer when i work out but i love it right <laughs> that's the good kind of suffering so i <laughs> yeah that we're all the millions there of, is good suffering <laughs> all the billions of creatures that have died to evolve to get to where we are you know like was that suffering bad um you know so i think it, 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 yeah, we're no, proving I, I, we're proving the point here the point is is to accept good and evil as both necessary pause <laughs> and we're back so yeah, I mean, evolutionary and historical processes just just created the world kind of sort of randomly, I think Darwin and and Hegel would say or you know, randomly but adaptively. Random so, but random it, is a dangerous word. Well, I should apply. say ad adaptively. So right. it's just, you know, like uh, creatures just kept adapting to their environment, adapting to their environment until eventually it springs out human consciousness. Mm. And then it's like as soon as human consciousness exists, then suffering starts existing. Yeah, like, yeah that's an interesting question. We were talking about consciousness earlier and I'm not convinced that my dog isn't conscious. I I, I don't think that's really possible to know because a, like that interface of like, what do you do? You put like electrodes, you know, it's kind of hard to understand how to experiment. But then B, it's the hard problem of consciousness. We literally don't know how it arises. So how can we say that it doesn't exist in something else, you know? Um, 
and clearly they experience emotions and stuff. So does Sadie, my dog, suffer? I, I think so. Oh, yeah. If you heard it, it suffers. Then it's Obviously. conscious. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. So I would definitely say that it's So it's not... Then. Suffering isn't just a human... This is the interesting thing about it. It's like we love to separate ourselves, but it turns out suffering is just a part of everything. But again... It's, See, this is Leibniz's version of God. He says that, like, you know, everything's this giant mechanical... Like, the whole the whole universe is a giant clock. Like, every single tiny thing down to the tiniest atom is is all one intricate clock. And, and you know, creatures like Sadie has a consciousness. Like, each individual thing mechanically that's functioning yeah, in, the, in the universe has a consciousness. And that's, like... He also said that's God. He was friends with Spinoza, actually. Like, Leibniz and Spinoza were... Friends. Really? Yeah. Yeah, which is... I think where Leibniz got some of his, well, definitely got some of his ideas from. But Spinoza was the ultimate G when it came to his version of God. I actually do believe in Spinoza's version of God, actually. There's, someone said that everybody after Spinoza is a, you know, just follows Spinoza unconsciously. Yeah, that's, yeah, but Spinoza, <laughs> Spinoza's version of God is that there was just one fundamental underlying substance that was everything and that, that well was, think that about was how common everybody says that you know yeah. like i'm not religious but you know i'm spiritual and it's this underlying energy yeah and that's pantheism <laughs> literally spinoza yeah pantheism <laughs> i mean but it's popular in other religions too like hinduism mm. and buddhism i think totally. both believe in pantheism and it's a part of my metaphysics i mean in one sense if you get down to physics, everything is just excitations and fields. You have the Higgs field, the electromagnetic field, on and on and on. So it, it, it's very clear in one sense that we actually are physically connected that way. Yeah, exactly. And there is only one universe and substance. I mean, separation almost is an illusion in that regard. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but to me, the cool part about that is, again, realizing that um, Spinoza isn't some weird... Um, I mean, he was a luminary, he was brilliant, but that very simple idea of looking at the world that way, it, it came out of him. You know, these philosophers kind of put their finger on the pulse and they, they describe what we are all trying to say, but we can't really say. And yeah. I think that's part... When was Spinoza? That was, um, oh, God, I don't... 15th, 14th century? I don't know. I would need to pull up. I mean, it's around the time when our <laughs> ideas around God are starting to mature. Wait, here, I'll look this up really quick. <laughs> and, it, you know, we're starting to get a more kind of um, rational, scientific view on the world. It's like um, we're starting to evolve our, um, our comfort with more with a more rational view on metaphysics, I guess. I'll yeah, Spinoza was like mid-1600s. 1600s. Yeah, mid-1600s. Yeah, I was way off. Um, but no, I mean... And point... influenced a ton of philosophers. I mean, he influenced Hegel. Like, Einstein said that his version of God was Spinoza's God. Uh, Terence McKenna said his version of God was Spinoza's right. God. Like, think about how much that influences all of us. I mean, it just taking God away from this solitary figure and saying, no, 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 it's this aggregate of all the things. Yeah, yeah, which is definitely how I'd like to view it. Again, in a deep sense, energy is real. Everything is connected. Yeah, there's, then, there's fundamental mathematical laws of physics. Like, just yeah. that alone shows wave, some, wave, something's intelligent wave. or there's some kind of so the something that's controlling something. <laughs> I, I go back to the hermetic thing as above below and it, there's deep truth in that it seems i mean there's also parody there's difference um but if we are conscious if dogs are conscious 
if fungi and trees are conscious in some way, then it's not, I, I want to be humble enough to go up the scale, like we talked about. We could be an experiment, we could be in the matrix, we could be some alien's little fucking, you know, side project. Yeah, or, exactly. Or, seriously, like, we don't know, man. How far does this go? How big does the scale get? It's really hard to... Yeah, statistically, it's actually more probable that we're living in a re simulation reality right. th than right. we are that God exists. Like, statistically, that's what's going on, people. So, therefore, <laughs> I would argue, then, the, the, the existence of God is, is also highly plausible. I'll put it that... Not highly. It is plausible, and I think... We should be aware of our, our preconceived notions and, and our biases against... You know, people trigger, man. They're like, you say God, and they're like, bullshit. You know, it's like, hold on, man. I'm talking about, like, love and togetherness. You don't even know what I'm talking about, you know? <laughs> well, I know. This is why, like, you know, even trying to define what is God right. becomes problematic because every religion has a different God? definition of it. Like, yeah. some are, you know, polytheistic. So some have multiple gods. Some have lots and lots of gods. So. Right. So I would argue that for me at least it's not if anybody cares it's not um it's not it's not a proposition I can't be like I've done the homework and uh I've saw a bunch of videos and and you know and they've proven the existence of God this is not how you're going to get at it you know Well I mean I, that's what I did I basically went through and was like all right well, Go through history here. What, what have we got? Who's got an existence for the like YouTube proof for the existence of God? Let's go. Let's go. And just yeah. nope. These are all actually kind of falling up short. Although they 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 inspire lots of good questions. That's the whole point of philosophy, anyways. It's just to to you know question your own beliefs, question reality, bring up good questions, know how to ask questions. <laughs> um, I would say God is a participation. It's not a um, a thing to be known. It's a game to be played. I'll put it that way. Well, I like Spinoza's version of God because out. pantheism means that like we're all one part of the same underlying fundamental substance. So it's like you can derive a very easy system of morality based on that by just being like, oh, well, me and you are still part of the same substance. We're all connected. We're all the same. We're all one. Like hmm. that, that kind of notion goes very far into building like a very straightforward ethical code. And that's kind of like where Hegel goes with it too as far as... You know, being able to recognize the self-consciousness of another person to be able to achieve your own self-consciousness. That's like what it takes in order to be a self-conscious individual. So Yeah. That's that's so a, it's like recognizing God in other people and in nature and in even yeah. like historical society. Like it's like looking for God in everything. Like, yeah, well when you when you notice the the individual and you notice that they're separate and at the same time, the same as you, in a sense, you are, yeah, you're, you're looking into God's eyes. Plus, like, the world is kind of this giant, crazy mechanical clock yep. that's just, like, you know, action, reaction, like... Everything's weirdly connected yeah, and, and associated. The butterfly effect, yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's good to be humble in the fact that, like, we might be able to affect things in, in a deeper way than we realize. And, you know, perhaps these spiritual people are, like, onto something with their with their practices and their insistence on certain things. And yeah, maybe, maybe some of the more fantastic stuff too. And I, like I say, I constantly am impressed with what arises out of metaphysical practice. It's, it's never, um, intuitive and rational. It's always surprising and magical. <laughs>
Yeah, I do think Aquinas' arguments are interesting. Like, do you think we will ever fundamentally answer the question of what is the starting point? Like, no. like I don't think no, we it's will either. It's, it's almost like fundamentally like point to consciousness, you know, in your head or in your body. Like, you just can't do it. Like, yeah, the... What emerges out of the aggregate is like way greater than the sum of its parts. It's combinatorially explosive, and it could be infin infinite. Yeah. Right. I mean, if infinities infinities exist, which they seem to do, then there's no way for us to ever. Fully yeah, and maybe the it. universe is infinitely recursive. Like, that to me makes it exciting because then philosophy and science is never done. We can only we can keep going. We're never gonna fully understand it all. Yeah. Yeah, it's very important to ask these metaphysical questions. So, I mean, this is kind of my problem with dogmatic religions is, you know, you you throw out all these metaphysical questions for just faith. No, just have faith. God created everything in seven days. It's like, wow, that's that just, me that's just like, a cop out to, to bigger questions in the world, which is like, which fundamentally need answering, in my opinion. So, or at least need to be like explored, discussed, dissected. Yes. It's like lazy religion. That's how I see that, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, like, it's a cop-out. <laughs> if, if you actually, I would argue a lot of these practices, if you actually embody it and do it, A, it's really hard, and B, you learn things in a, in a more holistic kind of embodied way. Like, you actually experience the philosophy rather than just spouting it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, what we're doing, we're experiencing philosophy rather than just spouting it. And uh, at least Buddhism, that's really... A big, and I know a lot of other religions are the same way. It's just about the ritual and the culture and the people. And I mean, like Bali is a very good example of like a religion that I I love their religion. I fully right. like embrace that one. But their their religion's beautiful. I mean, their ceremonies are beautiful. Their art's beautiful. They're like their philosophy generally on life's pretty beautiful which is to like you know keep in balance nature like your interaction with nature your interaction with people and then your interaction with god so they like try to balance all three of those and it shows in bali like yeah and i yeah it's just a really pretty religion <laughs> yeah, i'm with uh sam harris on this with the landscape of ideas so there's, there's good religions and there's bad religions. There's good ideas and there's bad ideas. And they're all battling it out in an evolutionary way, just like everything else. Yeah, it seems like their religion, it just makes them very nice, open, inviting people. I, and I would say those are the more adaptive religions. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is more adaptive. It's been able to, like, you know, take in Westerners and stuff and mm -hmm. be able to, like, you know, take them to temples and, you know, yeah. embrace their religion and embrace their cultures and customs and... Yeah, yeah, Bali's great for that. <laughs> and again, I, I want to, I hear myself the word religion, and it has this really constrictive, dogmatic, negative connotation. I want to, I want to repurpose, re, reframe <laughs> the word, take the word back. Religio means togetherness. I really think this is the key point. It's, it's the aggregate. It's getting comfortable with being close to other people, being close with yourself, with all the disparate parts. And then in a way, that's what love is, right? It's this attention and this closeness. Yeah, and that if, if you experience that, you practice that whatever way you want. Going to the movies, going to a concert, it is very clearly similar to a religious experience. I can't tell you the difference between a really good conscious or like a deep state, a really good concert or a deep state of meditation. They're very, very similar. Or the youth rallies I used to go to, the Christian youth rally. You know, you're all like rolling in Jesus's spirit. It's just like going to a concert, man. It's 
It's experiencing togetherness with other people. That is really the core aspect of it. It is not about the dogma and the guy in the sky. It's about the really humble, beautiful. Well, it depends on their religion. Well, I'm saying uh, and, for me, this yeah. is you know, this is this is all my theory on what religio means. And 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 again, you know, you got the parable of God and Satan walking down the road, and God's like, "Look, the truth," and Satan's like, "Here, give me it. I'll organize it for you." You know, like <laughs> the second you try to take this beauty down and you try to put it into something tangible, you make it human, and humans are flawed. Yeah. And I guess we will get into a little bit of theology. I mean, there's a lot of good moral and ethical things that a lot of religions can teach. I will never deny yeah, that I mean, one. like I said, we, we exist in that Judeo-Christian framework, like, very subconsciously, I would argue. And, and Or some people are... Con- I'm fully conscious of the fact that... Well, I, just because we're from the West, yeah. I mean, grow up in Bali. I mean, and grow up in a different country, and you will not... You will have a Hindu framework. You will have a yes. Buddhist framework. You will have a Taoist yeah. framework. You will have yeah. a totally different framework. To like, me, it's very fractal in nature. God is fractal, so it makes sense that there's different religions because they all kind of look at a different piece of the fractal. And if you look at a fractal, it's wildly different depending on which part you're looking at it when it's all rooted in the same ba- very basic starting conditions. Yeah. It's really beautiful, actually. How to, out of that unity, that oneness, you get all this crazy plurethora of, of being, you know? Well, all the major religions were trying to answer the same fundamental questions, yeah. which is like the primary mover question. Right. It's basically like all of Aquinas's like, you know, proofs through the existence of God. Those are the same things that every other religion is attempting to answer. So, so you know, that's it. It's like, you know, every every religion has a story of a primary mover as their as their ultimate deity. Like every religion has the, you know, primary causer. Like, like they're all they're is? all very think... similar. Like all of them have an explanation for what happens before you die, after you die. All of them have an explanation for the creation of the universe. Like every single religion answers these questions, and it's because fundamentally they're unanswerable questions. At least a shitload of them are. Like, some of these metaphysical questions, like, what happens after you die, are, like, maybe unknowable. Like, we may never, ever figure that out. And, like... that's what it was. I mean, originally, those types of... But that scares the shit out of us. So, we want to cling to religion, because then it has answers for those things. Well, no, Especially the really scary questions, like... In history, that is where we went for those types of questions. I'm just realizing this as you were talking... And now we go to science for those types of questions. Yeah, at least we try to, but like science still can't explain what happens to consciousness exactly. after death or where it goes exactly. or what consciousness is or, right. you know, like science, well, can this science is... can science answer moral questions? Yes, I would say using logic, using logic, you could probably get there with science alone. I would... but, but still, it's kind of, religion has at least given us a fundamental basis of morality across the world to deal with. Right. But, but that probably would have been emergent, at least Hegel would argue, that that would have emerged anyways, like just through the interaction of consciousnesses in society, like forming societal norms and like coming no. to agreements. And, this and, is where I disagree. I don't think... But, but we, they did virtue, it across the world independently of each other. Every society formed that way independent of each other. And they came up with societal norms, rules that governed their society. They all agreed to basically social contracts. Like every with, single society, irrelevant of religion, irrelevant of, yeah, of but, views on anything. Like they all came to the same conclusions on well, that one. Well, 
they didn't all come to those conclusions. Well, I mean, they all came to the like that your consciousness exists and that we should treat each other nicely because all... because if if I treat you like shit, you can treat me like shit, and then we we become enemies and threaten each other, and then it's it's total anarchy and chaos. So we need to set some ground rules so that. So that we don't just wind up, you know, killing each other. Yeah, and, and, but that's all within a religious ethical framework. Yeah, but it's uh, every single religion came to it independently. So right, because it's emerging out of the structure. Well, of the like universe. I said, it's just emerging out of like the need, the desperate need for a social contract because right. anarchy does not work. Like right. I know, I know, I love Fight Club a lot, but anarchy does not work. People, like, does not work. Um, so, you know, again, this used to be the home, all the meaning making and the understanding used to be the home for, you know, religion was the home for all of that. And now science is the home. But can you come up with a system of ethics on how to treat people and the deep vagrancies and strangeness of the universe embodied out of cultural and spiritual practice? Can you do a college thesis on that? I'm really not sure. What? Yeah, definitely. There's been probably thousands of them written. <laughs> no, no, but I can it can it. You're basically saying, can you? Um, can you come up with a system of moral ethics without religion? Yeah, fuck you yeah, define, you can. It's like saying, can you define God or something? Um, well, I, I'm just saying because I mean Peterson brings this up too. Jordan Peterson brings this up too, and a lot of other people bring up like, oh, you know, because religion's dead, that's why we're having such a meaning crisis. Like, yeah, you can't have a system of moral, so and more, you know, can't have an ethical and moral system without religion. Like, well, partly true, but I don't think so. I think all, again, all it takes is like good old Hegelian recognition of the other consciousness as self-conscious. Like, as soon as you do that, you can easily logically come up with a moral system and an ethical system, like independent of religion. And this is obviously true because like this basically every religion came up with the same core ethical and moral principles which was just to be nice to each other and recognizing that the other soul exists and that you're not just an npc like walking around and that i'm not a god like i don't control everything like that that basic recognition you can build a moral system off of can't the sociopath or the psychopath acknowledge that someone else exists and not care and just kill them Oh, sociopaths, I think that's the problem. Is they? I don't think they recognize that other people no, exist. They know, I think they are gods. I, they know that other people exist, though. Uh, do they, though? I yeah, mean, they're not stupid. Because if you're hurting someone, like, well... They don't have empathy. That's a different thing. Yeah, I guess that's this true. This is where the ethics uh, come. Yeah, you could have... Yeah, I guess that's true. You know, I mean, Craig Hegel is, would argue, though, that if you don't have any empathy, then you have no ability to self-actualize, period. Like, empathy is an absolute prerequisite for this self-actualization. Is why, this is what's so frustrating <coughs> about all this, because all I'm trying to say is that some of these religious systems, on a varying scale are clearly borne out for good reason. They explain a lot of this stuff and they put us in boxes so that we don't become these terrible killing. Oh yeah, I agree, absolutely. Machines. Historically, really it was good. super necessary. It was that yeah. absolutely necessary historically. Well, no, 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 it's, it, this, is, this is where we diverge. Or at least social contracts. The religious right? <laughs> impulse does not go away. You are just going to apply it in a different way. And this is the problem. If it's not rooted in deep, careful, thought out, born out, physical, psychological, mythological, philosophical. Back in the day, man, there was no separation between philosophy and religion. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. This shit is ancient. Like, to have someone just 
Dis- well, religion and philosophy are the to same thing. To dismiss the Ten Commandments, <laughs> to dismiss the Four Noble Truths, to dismiss the Bhagavad Gita as idiosyncratic, like... What? what? No, I'm not saying do that. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? I'm just, like, getting at, like, this core criticism <laughs> of religion that really bugs me. I feel like it's, like, totally... They're like, religion can't predict the motion of the atom. And it's like, that's not... That's, that's yeah, you not missed the, the point. point. <laughs> it is literally, I mean, the interesting thing is it actually helps with your perception in ways, but like, no, it's not. It's a different thing. It's the other side of the coin almost. On one side, you got science, and on the other side, you have God and fractals and everything else. And um, it almost seems like it's counterproductive to do a philosophy of See, that. Spinoza would argue against that, though. He says all the, you know, scientific rules that exist in the universe, those were created by the underlying substance, which is God. So it's yeah. like, it's like even those, like, are God just manifesting itself, or at least showing its logic okay, to us, I guess? Okay, here we go. So Zen Cohen, <laughs> uh, even the finger pointing at the moon is just the finger. It's yeah. that idea. You know? It's like you, we're just using like our apish little logic games that we have to define god i mean i really think it's a fool's errand um it's useful and well no it needs to be done because a lot of people like i i don't know like i said critical thinking is important and you should question everything so like i mean we're doing a philosophy podcast i'm questioning the existence of god that is happening right now (laughs) and our camera died again and we're back all right so yeah <laughs> I mean, with the philosophy of religion, the first thing to always keep in mind is that nothing is sacred. Like that—that that, that is the number one thing. Like, no, no question is sacred. Like, and that should apply to all of life. No question should be sacred. Wait, you should be able to ask a, any, ask any question. My initial reaction to nothing and nothing is sacred is kind of that's no, pretty... no question is sacred. What do you mean by that? By that, I mean, I mean, it used to be, you know, if you question the existence of God back in the day, you'd be crucified. So, oh, yeah, yeah. so it took a lot of balls for a lot of these philosophers to actually like, a try to come up with proofs for the existence of God, and then the people that like tried to dismiss those, oof, yeah, you better believe some of them got crucified for it. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the tyranny of ideas is always a problem. They, yeah. I think that's that's true with any idea. Clearly, not just religions, although religions are perhaps prone to it because. They exist in that meaning-making kind of rule-setting domain of humanity where you want answers, we got them. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe I'll get crucified for this for even calling into question, like, that God may not exist. But, like, I I don't think anything's sacred, like, at least not in that regard. You should be able to question anything. That's all I'm saying. I wonder if that's what what happened with Socrates, you know? Oh, yeah, no. Socrates asked too many questions. He pissed everyone off, corrupted the youth of Athens, and then, yeah. And then Nietzsche (laughs) took a hammer to God. Is it Nietzsche or Nietzsche? Eh, I think either's fine. (laughs) The the French say Nietzsche. Um, uh, yeah, he took a hammer to God, and you know, and he was he was partly responsible for the destruction. You know, and we all take it for granted that oh, you know, we're we're so smart, we understand how silly Christians. For a long time, that's what everybody thought, and nobody questioned it. You know, and it's like now we're it's like this brave new world where we question it. My only argument is that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and be careful when you're messing with the fundamentals of ethics and morality. In my experience, it's not very easy. You know what's common without ethics and morality? Nihilism and depression. You know what's uncommon when you go down some kind of ethical 
you know, path, those exact same things, you know, there, there's correlation here. I'm not saying that it's the only way, although I'm interested to think or to see a, um, a purely atheistic system of ethics. I well, think, like I said, all you have to do is recognize that people aren't NPCs. That would be the, the number one premise is that other people have consciousness. And then from there, you can build an entire ethical yeah, system. So if I mean, other, that's basically what Hegel did. Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that because it's like you want everybody to have an ethical system based on Hegel, who's like one of the most complex things. Well, I know. That's why we're trying to break him down. <laughs> that's why we're trying to break down his shit. And yeah. hopefully I'm getting it right, but I think I'm getting it right. I think that I at least, after reading so much Hegel and breaking everything down, I think that I at least have a pretty I cursory see. understanding of what he was trying to get at. But basically... You, through the master-servant dialectic and stuff, you need to, that whole thing is about recognizing that other consciousnesses exist so that you can be self-actualized. Like, the only way to achieve self-actualization is to recognize that people are not NPCs and that they exist, they have their own free will, their own independent consciousness, and once you do that, you can self-actualize. But it takes that process to, to achieve self-actualization. Mm -hmm. So once you do that, though, then you can come up with a system of morality and ethics. I mean, pretty easily based on that, which is just the golden rule. So be nice to others, you know, do unto others the way you'd want to be treated unto you. That's pretty straight up. I wouldn't, I would argue that that's not a very straight ahead proposition. What? Well, the, you, the straight you, ahead proposition. You could get there with a lot of premises and I could write like a 600 page philosophy book that would eventually get there. But like, you know, you could start out with, ow, I stubbed my toe. So that sucks. So maybe that other person, when they stub their toe, they feel right. the same thing. So I shouldn't, you know, kick them in the shin because that also hurts. And then you just build from but there. <laughs> the proposition that... I don't like getting my shit stolen, so I shouldn't steal other people's that, shit. That is what I disagree with. I think <laughs> the, the human and primitive nature would think, why not just kill and steal everything? Well, exactly. And that is, I mean, Hegel would argue that is human nature until we recognize the soul in another person and have the ability. That's why with the master-servant dialectic, he's saying if two independent consciousnesses that thought they were both basically gods were wandering around in a material world full of inanimate objects and ran into each other, their first instinct would be to try to murder each other. And then whoever yielded basically would become the slave to the other person, and then they would have to go and work the field for a while, and they would achieve self-actualization through their work and through working through the land and seeing the you know progress of their work. They would achieve self-actualization. The master wouldn't. And it wasn't until the master freed the servant or, you know, became less disconnected from the means of production or whatever, or just recognized that they're conscious <laughs> that that they would break free of that and achieve self-actualization. I know that's oh, I, see. I know that's a long No, I know what you're getting it's, at. It's it's very complicated. Like Hegel's probably the most complicated writer I've ever read. But um, that that's basically the premise of it. So, you know, he's saying that once you recognize that other consciousness exists, then then that's how you get self-actualization. I don't think it's it, 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 that to me is it's like um and then you can build moral codes from there it's like <laughs> step one you know know that other people exist like step two who knows step three who knows step four actualization i just think that that whole connection is rather fuzzy because um just because i know someone else exists doesn't well, he's basically saying that you can't prove your own existence until you can prove that other people also exist i mean that's that's actually what he's kind of getting at well yeah that's the deep so he's like he's saying it takes other recognition of consciousness in order to achieve self-actualization. So that's something different. That's that's philosophy and metaphysics. That's not ethics. Um, well, but he builds an ethical system based on that. So 
because once like like I said, if if you thought that just everyone else was just like inanimate objects, you would treat them all like yeah, shit. Right. Like think about a video game like fucking Grand Theft Auto is a perfect example, right? Like because you're basically a god in that game and there's no repercussions for anything, you run around and you kill everyone, shoot cops, do whatever well, you want. And that's a prime example of like until you maybe run into another human that's not an, an actual character, an actual self-consciousness, it's another player online or whatever. And then, then you have a totally different interaction with them. Like, and this is like that's a good analogy to Hegel, because he's saying that you know unrestrained consciousness like that would just would be very destructive, or just very usury. It would just treat everything like an object. And it's You're like as soon as, as, soon as you as soon as you stop treating people like objects, then you can achieve self actualization. You're proving my point. You need to have a system of ethics, otherwise you get just chaos and bloodshed. And no, everything. I'm saying that's the starting point. Is is recognition of the soul in another human being, like or self-conscious or consciousness in another human being. Mm. Just trust me, that is the fundamental starting point for a system of ethics. <laughs> uh, well, I'm trying to tease this out because I disagree, so I'm trying to prove why I disagree. Um, all right, so I know that you exist. What does that give me? That only gives me duality. Um, initially, I would probably think oh, we're separate, so I can just take from you. Now, where do I get this introduction to the idea that I shouldn't take from you? Um, and that, nowhere. I, I would argue that the whole... Well, no, you, once, once you recognize... Well, th see, this is why I said when those two consciousnesses first meet, they would try to steal from each other and shoot each other until they like came to some kind of co contract or terms or whatever where that? they were like, well, maybe we should work together as opposed to trying to kill each other. Like, How are you getting there, though? What do you mean? From you, because you're saying you get from the realization of the other to a system of ethics. How are you getting there? I mean, once you realize that other people exist, you realize you can hurt them. You can hurt them badly because so why you can not be hurt, hurt them. Because you can also be hurt. Yeah, but you see what I'm saying? That just the cold hard fact that someone well, else you exists. Could, see, this is why I'm saying you could have a totally selfish system of ethics, even just based on, well, I don't want this to happen to me, so I shouldn't do it to you. Um, yeah, this no, sucks that, when it happens to me, so I shouldn't do it to other people. No, it, but but you're proving my point. The the, the starting proposition is that the, you, there's two separate consciousnesses. It's, it's not directly apparent and intuitive nor obvious that what I do to you will hurt me and vice versa. That to me is the point of Adam and Eve and the fall from grace. Is the fact? No, that, it won't. It won't hurt you. But then I could potentially go and fucking hurt you. And yeah, that's if what you I'm hurt me. So that's that's where we need social contracts because and 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 yeah, that's where you get social contracts and a system of morality and yeah, ethics. And it's all... just strictly based on we can both fuck each other up, so let's agree not to do that. Yeah, and all <laughs> I'm saying is that that is in fact the good part of what religions are. Is there simply a social contract structure? Yeah, no, it's like it's it's yeah, it is the the it's like the un fundamental underlying layer to get to social contracts is usually what religion was more or less. So that we all don't just rape and pillage each other. Yeah, all exactly. The time. And I mean, I mean that's part of it. It's I honestly think it's deeper than that. It, again, metaphysics, alchemy, all this stuff was like connected back in the day. So I do think you're speaking to deep truths about the, re of the, the reality of the universe. It's just not necessarily things around matter and stuff. But again, because of matter and energy duality, then they, they are going to be connected, you know? 
But I, again, I think it's like the wrong tool for the job. It's like, do you want to understand the motion of the planets? Religion's not really the best place for that. See, but my, my, problem, my problem with developing moral codes, moral codes off religion, though, is that people can misinterpret the text, and then you, you get these whack moral well, systems right. that hurt a shitload of people, and those aren't good systems. I like, would those argue, aren't good moral or ethical systems if they're doing a shitload of damage and hurting a ton of people. Like, right. They could still be a direct interpretation from the Bible and hurt a shitload of people the, with those ideas. So It's the interpretation. It's actually an essential part of it, I would say. Like, I think... God, this is weird to say, but I think God would want you to, you know, they, they, in, the, in the Bible they talk about, like, he who struggles with God. Like, it's it's actually supposed to be a struggle. That That's part of it. You're supposed to, like, disagree and fight with it. Again, it's like this weird kind of, like, interaction with it. Like, in order to get anything out of the idea of God, you got to actually, like, interact with it and try it out. And then, lo and behold, you get something out of it. It's really, really weird. Um <laughs> And I would just, again, I would just wholesale say that I'm very skeptical of atheists coming up with a system of ethics on their own. Again, this is kind of like... And me as an atheist, I'm skeptical of like religions coming up with a set of moral and ethical codes of their own. Because so look, clearly look we're at, somewhere in the middle. Well, yeah, I mean, look at like some of these super, super restrictive religions, like in no, Middle Eastern countries them. where like according to their religion, it's okay to treat women as Dogmas property. Are like passe, man. You know, Dogmas are passe. You really need to be, I think we really need to be comfortable with variety and, and multiplicity and and different religions and holding things lightly. Dogma is clearly, you know, this is interesting though, because dogma for some things is productive, but you don't want to, you just don't want to ossify. You always got to take it. And... I think being dogmatic is a terrible thing. People need to be well, way more open-minded. Well, say you're trying to start a Fortune 500 company, you know, to have some rigidness within your system is a good idea. So dogma is not always a bad idea. I think, I think even a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs yeah. would say, no, that's wrong. You <laughs> no, want, no. you don't want to be dogmatic. You want people <laughs> yeah. to, like, use their fucking brains right. in your company and, and be uh, fucking is... free thinkers unless you just want to be a cog in a machine. This I mean, is kind of if you're the owner of Walmart, you don't want them to think for themselves. If you're the owner of someone who's exploiting their labor director, you don't want them thinking for themselves, but yeah. if you're run, if you're working at Tesla, you want them thinking for themselves. Like if you're doing an engineering firm, you want yeah. them thinking for themselves. Like it's it's a both and kind of thing. Yeah, they both have their purpose. You want to you need both those kinds of I, people too. Yeah, I just dogmatic religions. I have a serious problem with because <laughs> I'm a critical thinker. I people need to be more open minded, in my opinion. <laughs> While you're close-minded about the dogmatic religions, <laughs> no, but I've, see, I've I've studied them all. So how is that close-minded? No, like I'm just teasing you, Greg. See, the funny thing about this is we really don't agree. My metaphysics, <laughs> it, this is going to sound weird, but it transcends and includes that it really does. I'm comfortable with the variety of religions, and I'm comfortable with my deep, deep religious experiences that I've had. In a, in a kind of non-religious framework, right? Like Buddhism is the most non-religious religion there is. But I've also gone to church, Christian church, and got deep, deep meaning out of that as well. Um, but I don't think it's scientific. I, I value Hegel and his view on it. I value all the philosophers' like kind of scientific view on something that isn't scientific. But um, I do think it transcends and includes that. And... Um, I guess that's that's just where I'll leave it. Um, it is possible to experience God, and um, I don't know 
what the best way is, but... I mean, you can definitely experience Spinoza's version of God. I mean, you're experiencing it right now. Right. <laughs> you're, you're literally that's always it. experiencing well, Spinoza's version of God. That's the cool thing about... <laughs> Which is kind of cool. That's why I like Spinoza's version of God. It's not some omnibenevolent yes. dude in the sky with a beard. It's just everything. <laughs> like, Well, if, if God is omnipresent, then how can it not be everything? It's kind of... It's everything, but it's not conscious of it. Right. I mean, Hegel would say that, like, you know, through human consciousness, that is God understanding itself. Like, like, human consciousness is the only lens that the universe has for its own self so self recognition right like well the dogs and stuff but unless yeah. there's aliens out there which there probably are that hopefully yeah. at least have achieved also self awareness and self consciousness but mm. but yeah but yeah he would say that you know human consciousness is god and the universe trying to understand itself like human consciousness is god trying to understand itself <laughs> um because think, God doesn't have any other way to understand itself, according to Hegel. <laughs> I think that's deeply true, and I, I think we should call it. Okay. Yeah, let's call it. That was a good one. <laughs> that was a good one.